There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, You must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the wilderness, the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, that the world through him might be saved. And then finally, verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth upon him. This is simple teaching, but it's crucial for us. And I just want to take you very briefly through the first 15 verses and then focus a little bit on verse 16 and ask some questions. Just to introduce this, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin, in all probability, and a teacher of the rabbis. A professor, if you like, in a seminary. He was brave. This was very early in the Lord Jesus' ministry, before John was arrested. But he was brave because many of his colleagues opposed the Lord Jesus right from the outset. And he comes to the Lord Jesus... But he's not so brave. He comes at night when others wouldn't notice him. And uh, when he comes tonight to the Lord Jesus, he says to him, we, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no man can do these extraordinary miracles that you're doing unless God be with him. And he also calls him rabbi. Now that's very interesting. Here was a rabbi who would usually have been called rabbi by other rabbis. And he's calling the Lord Jesus rabbi, my teacher. I just wonder, I just wonder if there was a little bit of flattery going on here. Older seminarians, older teachers often know that with a little bit of 
coaxing and flattery, they can gain um, the uh, acceptance and the um, they can co-opt younger, uh, more zealous colleagues into their cooperation. Perhaps he was trying to establish a bridge. Perhaps he was trying to sort of butter up the Lord Jesus a little bit and draw him into the establishment. He saw there was a great rivalry, a great tension building up. Perhaps he was trying to act as a bridge between the two. I'm speculating. But he comes to the Saviour and he says, Rabbi. But the Lord Jesus won't have any flattery. If that's what there was, if there was any element of flattery to this, if there was any element of trying to mix the two systems together, the Lord Jesus' answer is absolutely steely. Right from the beginning, he doesn't even address him. Truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's very blunt and very direct. Now, if this teaching was completely novel, if it was something that had come completely out of the blue, had never been heard before, Nicodemus would be justified, to a certain extent, in saying, what's this? What's this new thing I'm hearing? But actually, the Lord Jesus Christ is repeating to us the same doctrine that we find in Ezekiel, about the need for a new heart. The old stony heart's no good. We need a new, fleshy heart. He was repeating the teaching of Jeremiah, that the old heart is no good. We need to have the, the law of God written into our heart, into our will, into our priority. There needs to be a completely changed heart within us. And indeed, if he'd read Moses carefully, he would have seen exactly the same thing. Moses says to the people, as he leads them out of Israel, you're still uncircumcised. You may be circumcised in the flesh, but your heart is still uncircumcised. He was saying to the Jews as they left Israel, you still need the experience of some great spiritual transformation. So what the Lord Jesus was saying was actually very standard, very biblical, very Old Testament teachings that have been looked forward to and longed for by the prophets for a long time. But Nicodemus reveals his state in verse 4. He seems completely shocked. What's this? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he go back into his mother's womb? He's got a completely carnal idea of this, completely fleshly idea. He's showing his own state. He's showing he doesn't see these things at all. He's completely blind to them. So the Lord Jesus doubles his doubling. He uses these expressions verily, verily. This chapter in John is one of the, it's the chapter with the second highest count of verilies. Three verily, verilies in this chapter. And here's the second. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is not optional. It's not an extra it's absolutely essential. This is the ABC of spirituality. And the Lord Jesus Christ doubles down. What does the water mean? Well, we only need to look at the next chapter to see the Lord Jesus speaking about the gift of water to a Samaritan woman. The gift of repentance. The gift of his doctrine. The gift of his teaching. The gift of truth. And he speaks of the Spirit throughout this chapter and in many other places. The Greek word is also the same as the word for wind. Same in Arabic. And uh, uh, so here, here is uh, a description of the Holy Spirit and of the truth of God. These are the elements by which a person is born again and enters the kingdom of God. And then he goes on in verse 6 to say that natural philosophy, natural reason, 
our carnal way of thinking will never produce spiritual effects. This is a spiritual truth. You can't mix the two things together. They're oil and water. A spiritual truth leads to spiritual results. A carnal truth worked out on human principles according to human philosophy will produce carnal effects. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And then he clinches it. Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. This is not something minor. This is absolutely central. Then in verse 8 he says something very mysterious. He speaks of a phenomenon that's very strange and very mysterious. The wind, speaking of the spirit, blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it's coming from and where it's going. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. This is the sovereign Holy Spirit's supreme work. In a strange way, we can neither predict it nor foretell it. It is his pleasure to act as he pleases, God's pleasure to act as he pleases. But again, Nicodemus is completely flabbergasted. He's completely confounded. He says this, how can these things be? He's never heard anything like it in the seminary. He's never taught anything like it to his students. Where has this strange and very powerful doctrine come from? And the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to him and says this to him. Are you a master of Israel and you don't know these things? <clears throat> it's almost as though he's saying, are you a dentist and you've never seen a tooth? Are you a fireman and you've never seen a fire? Are you a lifeguard and you still don't know how to swim? You know, it's, it's, he's, his response is jolting, it's jarring. He's really stirring up Nicodemus to think very carefully. There's a saying in one of the old English writers called Chaucer. And he says this, if gold rusts, what will the iron do? And what he means is that if the teachers are rotten and rubbish, what about their pupils? Well, here is a teacher and he's so ignorant of the basic necessities, he doesn't even know how to see, let alone enter the kingdom of God. In verse 11, the Lord Jesus goes on to say this third, verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak that we do know, and that which we have seen, and yet you're not receiving our witness. He's, he asserts his own authority. He says, I've seen these things. I know these things. And what's his qualification? Verse 12, uh, sorry, verse 13. But he says before that in verse 12, if I have told you of earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Here is something elementary. This is just a glimpse of spiritual truths. This is just the beginning. This is just the doorway into, into spiritual reality. And if you won't receive this, how will you really grasp the deep things? And then he goes on to speak of his authority. No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven. Who has ascended to heaven? And who has descended from heaven? Well, here is the son of man. And he's speaking of himself, of course, in the third person, the son of Adam in Hebrew, though the Greek text is here, but it would have been probably in Hebrew or Aramaic, the discussion. The son of Adam, the promised seed, the one to whom the promise was given, and then he says this very mysterious statement we don't have time to look at here. Who is in heaven? Not he was in heaven. Even now, while he's talking with you, this son of man mysteriously is still in heaven. He is the great I am. And again, the word in the Greek 
is exactly the same as the Greek translation for that word in Exodus, the I am. Hold on. So verse 14, he says this. As the, Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's alluding to an old account in the desert where the uh, children of Israel were bitten by very poisonous desert snakes. And the venom was at work within them. And it's, it's an extraordinary picture of sin poisoning us. How sin has infected us. And there's only one remedy at the time. Moses was told to lift up a, a brass serpent before the people. And they would look and they would be relieved. And then there we come to this golden verse that I want to rest with and focus on. So simple, so strong. And so central to all the gospel says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So a few questions. Who is it who's loving? Well, the son loves us with all his heart, with all his love, with all his blood, with all his strength. But it's not the son who is in focus here. It is the father. It is God, the Father, who gives his Son. And that is the focus of the verse. God so loved the world that he gave. And uh, it's um, a very extraordinary and wonderful love towards us. It reminds us of Abraham's dreadful sacrifice. How God called him up into the mount to offer up his own dearly beloved son. It reminds us of Jephthah's fearful offering. All of God, all of God's being loves us. The Father loves us, the Son loves us, the Holy Spirit loves us. But especially here in mind is he who gives the Son and counsels and commands and sends his Son and who calls his Son and prepares him for this extraordinary sacrifice. Second question, who does he love? Well, the word in the Greek is cosmos, the whole world, the whole universe. Every creature, in a, in, a, in a simple sense, gains some benefit from the cross. Uh, there's some benefit to all men, even the most wicked and unbelieving of men. There is some benefit, but of course there is a special eye to his own, to those for whom the Son was given. They come from all races, they come from all classes, they come from all backgrounds, high and low, they come from the uneducated as well as the educated. They come from the refined as well as the unrefined. Every nation is called. And what makes them different? Are they holy? Are they qualified? No, friends. Some of them are the most wretched sinners of all. Some of them are the darkest of hearts of all. But he loves them. He cares for them. And he gives his son for them. How much does he love? The third question. Well... I wonder if you've ever had this experience of a loved one going into hospital and facing an operation or going through an intensive care experience or perhaps even going to prison or being kidnapped or having some terrible experience at the hand of criminals. You know, as somebody who loves another person, in a strange way, it can be even more harrowing watching from a distance than it is actually going through the experience. Sometimes the person who went to ITU doesn't remember a thing afterwards. And uh, so, in a strange way, the person who is at a distance, who loves and is concerned, can go through an extraordinarily harrowing and difficult 
experience. And so it was for the Father. So it was for the Father for us. His love for his Son is inexpressibly deep. It is the deepest of loves. And the Son's love for his Father, of course, reciprocates and echoes that love. In fact, the very whole concept of sonship is deeply mysterious. We could never have thought this up. We could never have understood this without clear, forthright declarations by the Saviour and by the Word of God. Look at that verse 36, which we read separately as well. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. And he that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the anger of God abides upon him. See how crucial it is? All of our life, all of our future, all of our eternity hinges on one thing, whether we're related to this gift of the Son or not. Well, we may not fully understand it, but we can certainly <coughs> grasp him. We can lay hold of him. His love for us is as deep as his love for his Son. And for him to endure the agony of the punishment and death of his Son shows us very clearly Father's love to us as well as the Son's love to us. And his love to us drove him to that once for all sacrifice never ever to be repeated. The fourth question, who may believe? Whosoever. Whosoever. Do you need to be particularly educated? Do you need to be a, uh, to, do you need to know the Bible very well? Do you need to be very wise? Do you need to be very religious to come to Christ? Whosoever. Whosoever, the call and the command implicit in this is to all. Whoever will come, whoever will trust, all sinners who see their need, all rebels who put down their arms, are invited and commanded to come. Whosoever believeth. And what is belief? Our fifth question. Well, belief is not any old faith. It's not any old, um, it's not any old conviction. It's not any old persuasion. It's a sight that he is to be trusted. He is to be depended upon. He is reliable, leaning on him wholly for help and for, for salvation on Christ. The faith here is focused not so much on the Father, but on the Son. That's the sense of the grammar. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him, that is the Son, should not perish, but have everlasting life knowing that the Saviour can be trusted, taking him alone as our guide and our king, putting, him, putting our whole lives into his hands completely. That's faith, trusting him, leaning upon him. And just as a reminder, Judas followed the Lord Jesus Christ, but he didn't really believe him. He did miracles, but he didn't really trust him. He, he preached him in public, but he didn't really depend upon him. When it came to the crunch, Judas never really had this trust and faith and grasp of the Lord Jesus Christ that the other disciples had. Will you, friends, trust him? Have you trusted him like this? Have you taken hold of the gift of God? And this faith is a gift, not just the Son, but even the, abil the ability to believe in him is a, is a, is a gift is a blessing, is a movement of the Holy Spirit. So if you're struggling with belief, if you have doubts, if you're concerned about this, pray that old prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. Trust him, believe in him.
look to him. Know that he has a son, the son, the only begotten son, and follow him with all your heart. Sixthly, what is the alternative to lose ever, losing everything and following the Lord Jesus Christ? What is the alternative to forsaking this world, trusting the Saviour, and believing in him? Well, there is a single but dreadful word that sums this up. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish. The poison of sin is already in our system. Our pride is already eating us up. Our lusts are already corrupting us. Our deceit has already blinded us. Left to ourselves, this poison is lethal. This poison will kill us. There's no doubt of that. It already has killed us in a real sense. It's already cut us off from God. And death is already feeding upon us like a great parasite. And it will proceed more and more until death. Unless we go to the Saviour. Unless we look to that Lamb of God. But on a more positive and final note, what is the consequence of true belief? Well, here it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here is a life that cannot be taken away. Here is a life that once you receive it, it continues forever. You can't have everlasting life today and not have it tomorrow. It wouldn't be everlasting if it was. And secondly, here is something that starts now. The moment you trust in him, the moment you put your faith in him. Oh, friends, here is everlasting life, not at the moment of death, not at the moment of the severing of the body from the soul, not at the entrance into heaven, a life that begins the moment we look to him, the moment we believe in him, the moment we trust in him. As soon as we truly believe the Saviour, we enter into fellowship with the Father and the Son by the Spirit, drawn into the family circle of their communion. That life begins now, the moment we trust him. And thirdly, this is an abundant life. This is a deep and a real uh, connection to God, a present connection to God. Um, the deepest and the most excellent pleasures, the strongest and the most elevated joys belong to this fellowship. Here is real uh, communion. What is life? It is to know God, to be intimate with him, to walk with him, to love him, to enjoy him, to glorify him. And all oh, friends, this is what Christ means. Not just continuing existence, but here is everlasting communion. And I wonder if there's anyone here this evening who doesn't feel this, doesn't